It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Hello, everybody. Welcome. You are listening to A Public Affair on volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio. WORT 89.9 FM Madison. And I am your host for this next hour. I'm Carousel Baird. And really excited to be talking with everyone today. We have talked about the city council budget. We have talked about the county budget. But we haven't spent a lot of time recently talking about what's happening with school districts across the state of Wisconsin. I'm really excited to spend the next hour really talking about education and school. There's so much to talk about. I thought we'd start today with a conversation about money and education and uh, in sort of a couple of different ways we're going to talk about the referendums that were recently on the ballot we're going to talk about the MMSD budget and then we're going to talk about student loan debt and what the heck is happening with the proposal from President Biden that has now been put on hold for how long who knows by court of appeals across the country so Let's get the conversation started. I want to remind everyone, we would love to hear from you. If you want to join us and talk to us about any of these issues regarding education, give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. We have Jade and Sholly in the studio, um, or and Megan. I don't think Sholly's in the studio. Where the heck is Sholly? We've got Jade and Megan in the studio, um, ready for your calls. They can patch you in anytime uh, you want to join us at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. All right, let's get the show started. We have Scott Gerard joining us. Scott is my favorite, as we talked about at the, before the show. He's my favorite education reporter. He's the K-12 education reporter for the Cap Times. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me and for that compliment. It's always good to have you, Scott. And I'm, I'm not an elected official anymore, so I can I can be super nice to you. And it doesn't it's not putting my thumb on any scale anymore. So it's perfect. Um, OK, Scott, can you sort of kick us off with referendums for school districts? I want to focus first on Dane County. Um, the election that we just had a couple weeks ago here in November, there were eight Dane County school districts that had referendums on the ballot. What were those referendums and what happened? Yes. Uh, so there were eight school districts and they had a total of 10 questions because a couple of the districts uh, had two questions on the ballot. Okay. Uh, so there was a mix of operating, operational funding questions um, and then some capital projects. Um, so, you know, I could just do a quick roundup if you'd like. Um, yeah. In Verona, they were asking for an extra $19 million of spending authority on a recurring basis is one example of an operating referendum. And uh, that was approved overwhelmingly. Um, so basically that means the state imposed revenue limits, which I think as we talk about Madison's school budget uh, will also bring up again, uh, basically limit how much a district can raise through the combination of property taxes and state aid uh, is sort of the rough, easy, simple explanation for it. And so uh, operating referendums are an opportunity for a district to surpass that revenue limit by a certain amount. And all of that funding will come from local property taxpayers. Okay. Um, so it's basically local taxpayers having the opportunity to decide uh, whether what the district wants to fund over what it otherwise would be able to fund uh, is worth raising their taxes. Um, so Verona had a, a successful operating referendum. Wanakee also had a successful operating referendum. Um, and that one uh, is sort of phased in over some years. So there's a lot of different structures to these referenda as well. Um, and there's also recurring and non-recurring. Uh, recurring means that it's in perpetuity and non-recurring means it's for a certain number of years and amount of time. Um, and so a lot of districts, I won't get too into that with every district, but just yeah, wanted yeah. to mention well, a lot of different kinds. And can you talk to us? Um, before we get into the capital project side of it, I had a question about the operating, which um, is, are these all, are all the operating proposals that you've seen 
sort of open-ended. It's not, we want more money so that we can raise teacher salary or that we can add strings and arts or that we can add any of this. Maybe that's part of the explanation to the public, but are the referendums themselves just saying add money to our operating budget and then the elected school board members have the discretion to fund it any way they want? Yeah, so these referendum... Uh, a district can get more specific on the ballot, but the more specific they get, the more their hands are tied with how they spend that money. Correct. Um, well, a lot of times what happens is the the question itself will be pretty focused on the numbers, but then a lot of the materials that the district shares with how it will spend that money uh, will include some of those proposals and some of the things that a district wants to do, whether it's raising money for staff, adding programs, things like that. But a lot of it is also can a lot of that can sometimes be general too because it depends on what a district's needs are and that could change from year one to year two of a referendum. Well, um, I like the sense of um, trust, perhaps that the voters. I mean, we'll get to uh, the approval of these and 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 uh, they have been approved, but it has this sense of trust then on their elected local officials, their elected local school board of we're going to give you this money without heavy strings attached because we want our schools to succeed. I, I love the thought. At least that's the message that I feel like I'm getting from it. Yeah. Well, and one interesting quirk with school budgets and the timing for these things is school districts are required to pass their budgets by uh, October 31st. Well, if they have a referendum for the current year, <laughs> that won't be voted upon until, you know, a week later. And so what actually happens in these districts is they'll have two versions of a budget. Um, And so there is a little bit of, in that first year, generally, there's a little bit of direct, this is what will change. But again, if it's something that is going to be open in perpetuity or it's for multiple years, it really is the community certainly saying, well, we expect you to, we expect and trust you to continue using this money in these ways that we support. But yes, school budget timelines are also uh, sometimes pretty quirky. Okay. Tell us more. I mean, that's really helpful to know just sort of what these referendums actually mean, right? Tell us more about there's capital referendums as well. Do those have more of a specificness? We are approving this so we can build this building? Yes. So the capital referendums very often, you know, they, they allow a district to take on debt basically is the question that they ask. Um, and then pay it down. And those questions usually get pretty specific with uh, outlining what the projects are. So an example, the biggest one in Dane County was Wanakee, um, which had a $175 million capital referendum on the ballot that was approved uh, more narrowly than the operating uh, question, but still approved. And that one is building a new elementary school new middle schools, removal of a current building, and then some other renovations throughout the district. So they had to be a bit more specific with what uh, what sorts of things they would be constructing with that money. So what was the outcome? Did everything pass in Dane County? Yep, everything in Dane County passed, um, and most had more than 60% votes. Actually, I, I think looking at this now, uh, all of them except for that capital question in Wanakee had actually more than 60% support. Um, and that capital question, Wanakee, was more was closer to 52%, so a little tighter there. And, I mean, I think this is quite a testament. Let's now sort of look big picture, statewide, um, 81 uh, referendums on this ballot. That's up from 70 from a previous election. That's up from 51 from a previous election. Um, November 2020 was when Madison... Uh, referendum went forward. Is this sort of the new normal? Are we seeing this? This isn't just a a quote unquote liberal or Democrat communities that are are asking to asking voters to approve raising their taxes. But we're seeing this statewide consistently now. Yes, we are. And and actually, I'm glad you mentioned that subject. I'm I'm hopefully going to have a story sometime soon about, you know, the polit the the difference between political preferences versus referenda because you there isn't a, a notable difference between conservative or liberal communities in approving yeah. these things because they're local questions and so as you mentioned there were 81 questions on this 
falls ballot for school districts and 64 of them were approved. So that's 79% uh, from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, who's done some really great uh, analysis over the past few years, I think, highlighting the growing trend of school district referenda uh, around the state. I think there's there's so much more to talk about this. Uh, maybe I'll ask you one more question we, before we get to the specifics of, of Madison. What do you see? Do you see districts... Have we seen any districts going back, doing another referendum? And and has this sort of history of referenda, um, it, it feels like it, it just started in the last few years, perhaps in response to um, decisions by the prior uh, Governor Walker and the state legislature to put some holds on education. What's sort of the, the response now? What, what happens next? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think what happens next is dependent largely on the outcome of budgets going forward and, and specifically school funding from the state. And given where the legislature's at, it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. We've, we've seen the proposals from Governor Evers uh, to, to increase funding pretty substantially, but the legislature has rebuffed those efforts in recent years. So we'll see what happens going forward. And, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about the state Supreme court race in the spring and what that could mean for legislative maps. And then what that could mean for legislative elections and then what that would mean for school funding. So there's a lot of factors at play at whether this continues at, on the trend it's been, but um, there absolutely has been a growing trend, both of the number and of their success over the past uh Five or so years. It looks like it, this is perhaps the new normal of local school boards going to their local communities asking for more money um, and the state legislature then saying you don't need new money because you can ask your local community and you know there's sort of a chicken and the and the egg issue there um, but at some point that's just perhaps how how the future may play out. Absolutely, it's possible. And yeah, it really is. Uh, it's local control, as conservatives would call it, I think, to to its fullest extent. And, you know, I think for school boards it and, and school officials, it can be a very stressful thing because there's a lot of uncertainty built in and, and yeah. the consequences of failure are, are can be large, depending on the community. That makes a lot of sense. Um Thanks so much for talking with us about this. I want to remind everyone we're talking with Scott Gerard, the K-12 K to twelve education reporter for the Cap Times. Um, Scott, now let's transition a little bit to the MMSD budget. And again, there's so much to talk about here, but let's sort of get the big overview. As you talked about, it has to be approved by October 31st, 2021. Um, 2022 was the deadline for this coming school year. Um, and MMSD did it just on that day. Um, tell us what was approved in that budget. Yes, so they did it on Halloween. A couple of people were even wearing costumes, so that's great fun. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I myself handed out some candy during the meeting at home uh, while I was watching from home. So, uh, yeah, so it was a, a record-setting budget in terms of its size. Uh, that is mostly attributable to uh, the, the still pretty lo- significant amount of money coming from COVID-19 relief from the federal government. And so that has uh, just put a lot more money into the district's budget uh, and allowed them to try out some initiatives and and work on some other things for now. So what does that mean? I I know there was a lot of talk of, okay, phew, we've got this budget through, but there's a lot of concern that the funding is going to drastically change because of uh, one-time funding due to COVID. Yeah. So one of the biggest challenges for schools right now has been figuring out how to spend these, in in Madison's case, tens of millions of dollars. Um, You know, these are uh, operations that are pretty used to, I think, operating on a tight budget. Uh, And so when you have all this money to spend, you know, the mechanisms for figuring out how to spend it aren't necessarily always there. And then on top of that, you add in the fact that it is one time money. So it has to be spent, and depending on, there's ESSER 1, ESSER 2, ESSER 3, and they all have different deadlines for when money can has to be spent by. And depending on those deadlines, you may have one year or two years to spend all of that money down. 
And so you not only need to find projects that are big enough to fund to spend that money on, but recognize that beyond that one or two years, you won't have that source of money. And so putting that money toward ongoing expenses, and I think the most salient example in Madison is raises for staff, uh, is not sustainable. And so it became this question of, well, this is what we want to do. Should we do it and figure it out later? Or do we not do it, even though we have this money in front of us? And, and it, there's not an easy answer to that. How, so what did the um, school board decide? So, yeah, the district um, ended up spending, uh, they, they gave staff on base wages a 3% raise, which was a little below the maximum cost of living raise that would have been allowed. Uh, and there was also, uh, they spent about eight and a half million dollars of funding toward a $5 an hour increase for a lot of hourly staff members. Um, and so again, the, the concern with that was, you know, this may not be sustainable going forward, but now that we've set this level, we have to meet that year after year. And so there is a lot of concern, I think, um, within administration and among some school board members about what's going to happen next year, but they are going to just keep giving it a a try. And I know there's, there was a lot of talk about departments looking back at their budgets and trimming wherever they can and and looking to cut going forward so that they can maintain some of these things. So I know there was some sort of conversation about, do we go back to referendum or, or do was there any, you know, even even if it was side talk to the to the um, to the ultimate budget vote about conversations about where this money will come from in the future? So right now, there there was mention of uh, going back to referendum, and and uh, board member Sabine Castro specifically has brought it up a few times just to try to I think let people know like, hey, this is something we're going to have to be considering. There wasn't talk about that for this fall or even next year. There, the the November 2020 operating referendum is still uh, in existence and still adding money to the budget. So I don't gotcha. think they would likely go back before that expires. Um, but there, you know, it's it's tough to say. There there wasn't a lot of specific talk about next year's budget yet. It was more this is what we ha- we feel we have to do right now, and then we need to spend this year working on how we meet this need that we've now created. And, and so the budget process typically starts around January, publicly at least. I, I mean, administration behind in their offices and everything is already working it's on al- it. There's always um, budget talks, right, right. Yes. But, uh, but as far as the sort of the public conversation about it at school board meetings, um, that should start in January. Uh, and then they have January through June when they typically approve a preliminary budget to start operating on July 1st, and then they will do final approval in October. And were there any specific programs or changes in this budget, or was it just trying to fund the status quo and uh, add the the raises that teachers and staff deserve? No, there, there were certainly some new programs. Uh, I think one of the most significant uh, is ongoing funding for early literacy. Uh, and new programming around teaching the youngest students how to read. Um, There were also, and and again, this is where some of that federal relief funding comes in. They've invested in some other programs to try to see if there are things that are worth sustaining and finding funding for. Um, So there's just different initiatives at at school-based levels. And um, then there were also investments in things like full-day 4K, they expanded the number of sessions of that they have to, to reach more students. They added some more funding for uh, social workers. They're still well below the uh, ideal ratio from, yeah. for a social work student to social worker ratio, but they're moving in the right direction based on this budget. Um, expansions to some other programs like uh, the uh, for high schoolers getting early credits, uh, early college credits. There were some expansions, Office of Youth Reengagement, which is for students who are struggling to stay engaged at school, got some more funding. So there were there were definitely investments in a, a variety of, of programming. Um, 
But again, the question is how those are sustained going forward. And, and that's just not clear yet. So, Scott, one thing that I that stood out when I was um, sort of this morning re- reading all the uh, all of your reporting and, and some other things online was the fact that they didn't um, increase the average home tax. Ex- explain that to me, how the budget has increased, but the tax levels have decreased. That I feel like there's a math a question. Great. We're back in math class. You are the teacher, yes. Scott. Right. That is a great question. And this would be an advanced math class given the, <laughs> the state funding formula for schools. But so as I mentioned earlier, that revenue limit ultimately sets a, a maximum level that districts can take in funding through the combination of state aid and local property taxes, uh, plus any referenda that pass. Well, what Republicans did in the last uh, last year uh, was they increased state aid to schools, but they did not raise the revenue limits. And so what that means is that, well, state is providing more aid. That doesn't mean districts have more money to spend. It just changed where they're getting that money from. Ah, okay. Yeah. And so uh, the state is providing a bit more money, which means there's a bit less of a burden on local property taxpayers through their property tax rates. And then the other uh, factor in the, the tax rate itself is the equalized value. Uh, an equalized tax base. And that had a significant increase in MMSD this year after there was sort of a blip last year and some issues with how things were calculated. It took a big jump this year. And so that means the average home is worth more, which means the rate necessary to tax goes down. Gotcha. Okay. So then the, the question to sum all of this up is did MMSD leave money on the table? Could they have taxed, homeowners more no no because of that revenue limit um they they cannot surpass it other than what the referendum allows and they they included that as part of the budget okay okay so scott what can we expect to see next from mmsd i mean you talked about budget conversations in in january but are there any specific budget issues that are that um, or, or big prog- programmatic issues that have come up. And I, I know they've talked about like the big ideas, but also there's been talk about, you know, honors classes. There's been talk about, as you said, 4K. There's been talk about adding social workers. Is there anything that's really highlighting? There's so many things. And, and I think one of the challenges the district is going to have is assessing what is successful and what isn't uh, just because of the number of programs that they're trying out and trying to implement. Um, you know, there's a, you mentioned a lot of conversations around some of those things, you know, I, a, a program like the, the, a discussion like the honors program conversation going on, I don't think will have a huge impact on the budget necessarily. Okay. Um, it could change certain de- salary designations and things like that. But overall, that's more of a policy conversation uh, than a budget conversation, but continued expansion of 4k absolutely would take more of a budget investment. Um, ongoing investment in student mental health beyond just social workers will take a continued investment. There was just a conversation on Monday about uh, in, in 2019, the board adopted a resolution uh, committing to using 100% renewable energy by 2040 with some benchmarks leading up to that. Well, there was a, sort of feasibility report done that showed the costs of meeting Mm -hmm. the benchmark outline in that resolution. And it is not cheap. Um, (laughs) We have a a lot of old buildings in MMSD. Yes. And and so, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, the four high schools are currently being updated from the 2020 capital referendum. Um, That work will continue for the next couple of years yet. And then I wouldn't be surprised to see a a referendum for other buildings and whether that's environmentally focused, whether that's more simply just upgrades to buildings that need them because they are older. Um, And then you get into things like school lunches that Mm, have have been a major topic of conversation this year. And to really get to a level of scratch cooking at every school or something like that, you would have to retrofit a ton of kitchens 
And so, you know, these are all budget questions that the school board and the city of Madison as a community are going to have to sort of figure out what they want to prioritize and, and what they're willing to fund. Because there's there's certainly no sort of shortage of things that the school district could fund if it had the money, I think. This has really been fabulous talking with you, Scott, um, and just sort of getting right a reminder on the lay of the land. And, you know, elections are coming up um, and there's. I think there's at least one school board member that has announced they're not running for re-election. Is that correct? More so than actually, one? The, the only public announcement we have is uh, Nikki Vandermillion will be running. Oh, first, she will uh, be. Okay. Yes. Christina Gomez-Schmidt is uh, currently the holder of the other seat that's up next spring. And she uh, told me last week that she would have an announcement in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so I don't know what her plan is, but there's, uh, those two seats are the ones that are up this coming spring, and that's the elections in April with a primary in February if necessary. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, it's just good to sort of have this on on our minds of all the things that are happening in MMSD as we think about the role that the budget uh, plays and the role that the school board plays. So this has been great. Yes. Yeah. What a time to come into if, if someone new does get elected in April, they'll have about a month and a half to understand the whole budget before they pass a preliminary one well, so i mean that's how it is all the time yeah it's pretty pretty intense timing at least the city council and the county board has a couple more months but you know that that's that's the joy of our local electeds um well Absolutely. it's been great talking with you scott thank you so much for joining us um and by the way i will like explain another reason why i think you're fabulous that you on halloween night were watching the school board race my household we were um or the school board meeting you were watching my household was watching the city council meeting so i i feel like you know you can identify very much. I'm this, glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. This is what you do. Hand out candy. Look, Listen to a little policy. Super, yeah. super fabulous. Well, thank you, Scott, so much for joining us as always. Um, it's great to hear what you're working on and thinking about. And we look forward to seeing your next stories um, covering education in the city of Madison and Dane County. Thank you so much for having me and for talking about education on your show. It's it's. I love hearing any conversation about it. So. Yay! Good. Well, it's been fabulous. Scott Gerard, uh, the K-12 education reporter for the Cap Times. Thanks so much, Scott. I, I want to remind everyone you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Carousel Baird, and we're going to continue the conversation, but I would love to have anyone join us. If you want to be part of the conversation, we would love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, we have Megan in the studio. We have Jade in the studio. They're ready to take your calls, and you can join us on the air, or you can pass a message on through them. Area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. And now for the second half of the show, we are going to talk about student loan debt. What the heck is going on? Because it seems like there was this huge decision. Hooray, everyone's going to get some relief based on your income and how much your loans were. And now it's c come a bit to a screeching halt. We need to find out what is going on. We have two guests joining us t for the second half of the show. First, we have Laura Sutherland. She is the co-director of the Wisconsin Coalition on Student Debt. And she's the administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. Um, I interact with that department all the time in my tenant-landlord work, so it's great to, you know, see the great leaders from there. Hello, Laura. Hi, Carousel. Nice to see you, and I want to talk to you about landlord-tenant sometime, too, but maybe oh. not today. Hey, that'd be great. But thank you for joining us today. And then we also have Benjamin Lee joining us. Benjamin is the Associate Counsel for Ascendium Education Group and a member of the Wisconsin Coalition on Student Debt. And both of you um, are part of the Wisconsin Coalition on Student Debt. Thank you so much, Benjamin, for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Carousel. It's great to have you. Um, so I want to start first with sort of big picture. What is the Wisconsin Coalition on Student Debt? So um, I'll, I'll take that one as a, as a co-founder of the coalition. The coalition is a nonprofit organization um, representing a range of concerned organizations and stakeholders that seek to increase the clarity and in key issues around student loan debt. 
um, student debt, college affordability, and loan repayment. So the whole spectrum. Um, it's a nonpartisan group, and it's a coalition of non uh, of members who um, work together to promote outreach. Um, to improve the borrowing and repayment experience of Wisconsin consumers in particular. It's fabulous that an organization like this exists, especially because you really only think about student debt. I think the public in general thinks about student debt. When you think of, oh, people, they finished college and now they're trying to get a job. But there's so much more to it than that before, during, and after. Um, so it's great to know that you exist. Um Okay, so let's sort of start with what's happening with President Biden's proposal. He proposed this past August an executive action. Can you sort of help outline what it was that the president proposed? Yeah, I can take this one, Laura. Mm -hmm. um, so the Biden administration proposed 10 or up to 20,000, depending on if you got a Pell Grant or not, in what they're calling student loan debt relief. And that was for loans held by the Department of Education. So any loans that qualified for the payment pause during the pandemic would also qualify for this debt relief. And the department received, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 26 million applications. Um, and before they could start processing any of the debt relief, uh, there was litigation. And that litigation is currently making it so that not only can they not provide the debt relief, but they are not processing applications at the moment either. I want to break down some of the things that you said. And one of the things that pops out is six, 26 million applications that as soon as there were you know, so many times the government is announcing these big programs and then they have to spend all of this effort trying to get the community to know, hey, we are doing this COVID relief. Hey, we're we're doing these different initiatives and, and working to make sure outreach happens so that the community knows initiatives that the government is taking, state, local, federal government. In this situation, an announcement was made and 26 million people, before the program even was officially initiated, signed up. What what's your reaction to that? Um, you know, first off, hat tip to the Department of Education for setting up a website that could handle that volume without crashing. I think that's <laughs> significant. Um, and second, you know, there's <laughs> student loan debt is very, very common. Um, there's a lot of people out there that this affects and a lot of people that are plugged in through enough channels, you know, social media, people started talking about it immediately. And you're essentially telling people, here's your shot at 10 or 20. Uh, folks act. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I appreciate the point that in America right now, when we're a pretty, you know, divided and partisan country, and I guess we're all thinking about it right now because the election just happened. This is something that is not per se political. It's everyone has student loan debts, no matter wh where you went or or what kind of you know what your philosophy is, what your major was, what your career is right now. Th this feels like a conversation where everyone in the country can relate and understand to the impact and burden of student loan debt. Absolutely. I mean, here in Wisconsin alone, there's over 700,000 borrowers and we have over $23 billion worth of student loan debt just in this state alone. So the impact that this kind of student loan forgiveness could have on the state of Wisconsin is significant. And, and one of the things that, that the coalition sort of formed around is, 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 is that, is the fact that student loan debt impacts, you know, our ability to buy homes, our ability to buy houses, our ability to um, live independently, and it and it, people carry it with them for decades, you know, um, and it really is an impediment to, um, to the way people live, and it has a particular uh, impediment to um, vulnerable communities and, and the black and brown community. So um, this debt that the, that the administration um, was looking to forgive could have had real impact and can still if, it, if, the, um, if they are successful in their litigation, but it can still have a real impact on Wisconsin borrowers. Let's talk a little bit about um, the, the importance of, of reform in this. Is, is there a desire, like is, is student loans and student loan debt inherently a, a, a bad thing? Is there benefit to having student loans and has it crossed the line beyond that benefit? 
So, I mean, I think that's an interesting question and one that, you know, the coalition doesn't necessarily take a position on that. Okay. Um, we, the coalition is, a, is as I say, a, a membership organization, and we represent um, state organizations, we represent private organizations, we represent advocacy groups, we represent loan servicers, we represent um, financial aid um, servicers. Um, so we're talking about, you know, everyone that sort of touches the space. And what I can say holistically about that group is that they are all interested in bringing the student loan debt down and, and making sure that people can pay it back efficiently and effectively. But the question that you're asking in general is one about the cost of college, um, gotcha. you know, right. which is a broader question and one that's really interesting. Um, but it's it's a much broader question than, than um, what, you know, the repayment issues that that are facing the administration right now and student loan borrowers in the, in the, in the state. So what do you think the response is when you were talking about the student loan debt is an impediment to, to people being, you know, successful. Is it more just, we want to make sure people understand the impact that it has, the resources that they have. Is, is, is that really part of the conversation? Cause the student loan forgiveness and we'll get a little bit more to why it's being put on hold. Th- that is Amazing and excellent, but it is a one-time shot in the arm to the system that right is is causing these challenges. Well, I can speak a little bit to the impediment, but we certainly can pivot to some of the other programs that the administration is working on, and Benjamin can get into the weeds on that. But okay. The the loan forgiveness is one of the many things that the administration is doing and and arguably maybe not the most impactful long term. There are other programs that are actually even more impactful in terms of bringing down the student loan debt. And I'm teeing up Benjamin to talk more. Fantastic. Explain it better. Um, But in in terms of your original question about um, is is student loan debt an impediment? I mean, I I mean, the reality is uh, you know, not to circle back into a conversation about cost of college, but it has it has significantly increased. And I think one of the challenges about taking on debt is we call it like the eating, you know, it's eating your vegetables. You have to, people are really excited about where to go to school and the opportunities about what education provides. They are less excited to think about how to pay for it and where, you know, what's an efficient and effective way to do that. And oftentimes, um, you know, it's the narrative of the country. You'll get an education and you'll be off, you'll be better off and you'll be able to figure out how to pay this loan back. Um, and so people often take a significant amount of debt out. Um, and I'm not by any means saying it's the borrower's fault, but what the coalition is trying to do is educate people about ways in which they can, um, you know, effectively get debt that they can handle gotcha. um, and effectively pay it back. Um, and, you know, there's lots of predatory loans, there's lots of predatory schools. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which you can get taken advantage of in this space. Um, there's lots of predatory products about how to repay your loan that you can get taken advantage of. Um, so student loan debt is a significant uh, issue that um, oftentimes people don't think enough about it at the time they're accumulating it. And it's on the back end that they realize how, how impactful it can be on their life choices. Um, so that's part of the coalition's mission. But, but again, um, it, is, it is a blow to the administration that this got put on hold for a period of time or perhaps indefinitely, but it's not the only program that the administration has put forward. And Benjamin can talk about some of the other opportunities that borrowers have. That sounds great. Thank you, Laura, for just sort of help you know, laying all all of that out. So, Benjamin, tell us about some of the great initiatives that exist right now. So one that's going on right now, which many people are hopefully aware of, is just the payment pause generally, right? No payments have been due or required on federally held student loans, um, basically since the start of the pandemic. Right. And this is a pretty great benefit, Um, you know, zero interest, the months that are going ticking by count towards income driven repayment forgiveness, they count towards public service loan forgiveness Um, for borrowers in default. um, There's not these negative consequences of tax offset, their wages aren't being garnished, things of that nature. In paper, you know, in some court filings today, Undersecretary of Education, James Cavall, said that the 
you know, admitted that the department is looking at all of its options when it comes to this litigation. And one of those options is extending the payment pause until they yeah. can figure out what's going on here. So as of right now, it's scheduled to end at the end of this calendar year. Yeah, in um, January. So payments in theory are due again in January as of right now. Correct. Um, but it looks like they're, you know, uh, not surprisingly thinking about possibly rolling that over for I think this would be the eighth time that it's been extended. So we have um, a pattern here. Um, well, you know, as someone who has their own student loans, um, I haven't gotten any notices about my loans going back into repayment yet. So <laughs> they're at least not telling their servicers to send anything out just yet. That's um, encouraging. That's encouraging to know. Yeah. And then a program that I really want to flag uh, while we're all talking about this is this income driven repayment and public service loan forgiveness account adjustment. Um, hopefully folks have heard about the PSLF public service loan forgiveness uh, waiver, which ended on Halloween. Um, what people haven't been talking about as much is this account adjustment, which essentially rolls over almost all the benefits from that waiver. Um, but for some reason has received much less fanfare and actually add some new benefits. So I really encourage folks to head out to studentaid.gov, which is the department's, you know, clearinghouse for student loan and FAFSA and all sorts of other information. Check out the PSLF and IDR account adjustment. Um, in some cases, this account adjustment, if, you know, you it applies to your loans, uh, you could get years worth counted towards forgiveness, um, either under PSLF or IDR that didn't qualify under normal rules. So something that everyone should be paying attention to. And how can people find out if this applies to them? I know, Benjamin, there's a student debt hotline that you're a part of. Yes, absolutely. So um, there's a phone number that I should have had up on my screen before I started this interview. And That's I, okay. We, uh, we, go. we can yes. share it too. Yes. I um, have it. It's 833-589-0750. Okay. Thank and, you, Laura, for being more prepared than I am. Um, and and we'll, put, yes. we'll put a link to every, everyone. You don't have to have memorized that number quite yet. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a hotline that my company um, mans. And it's just student loan experts giving you, you know, completely free, unbiased advice. They don't have access to your accounts. They will just try to help guide you through this insane maze of sort of uh, in, you know, limbo that's going on right now and see what, you know, options might be best for you. I mean, and that's what the sort of tricky part is, is the level of complexity. Uh, and, and all of this, it, it feels like student uh, loan debt have a different level of complexity than other loans that I have. Is that my perception or is there some accuracy to that? Oh, no, de 100% accurate. <laughs> they don't they don't act like loans in many respects. Um, I recently was seeing uh, about getting pre-approved for a house purchase, and I had to spend a lot of time back and forth with my local credit union explaining what my student loans were, what, what the payments were, why I didn't need to make any right now. Um, you don't usually need to do that with any other financial products. So you are absolutely right on that one. It's, compl it's complicated even for financial um, employees and people that work within the system. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, so, Benjamin, can you now tell us a little bit about why um, the proposal, the student uh, the student loan forgiveness proposal by the Biden administration, it's currently on hold? What's happening uh, in litigation? So one judge vacated the whole, um, you know, <laughs> the whole movement, basically saying, you know, you can't do it. Right. You have um, no standing, which means you have no right to sue for this. No, you can't just sue anybody for anything. Oh, no, no. They, this judge vacated the the forgiveness. Um, ah, the other way. Well, yes. right. One judge said you had no standing. And then another judge said you have complete standing and this is not legal. Yeah. Yes. And then another court uh, put an injunction on. So sort of not allowing the department to move forward with it while they decide some issues. Um, so there were other, you know, there, there's been some litigation that got tossed out early on, but right now we have two different courts that are essentially halting this from going anywhere, uh, at least in the short term. The department has already come out and said that it'll appeal those two decisions. Um, so that's in the works. Um, but as everyone knows, litigation doesn't tend to move too quickly. So right. we'll see. And just in general, some of the arguments seem to be, 
right? The fun legal argument of the administration didn't have the legal authority to do that. And that's a fun rabbit hole we'll leave for the lawyers. But another part of it was an argument that this was taking away tax revenue uh, from other states and government entities. Is that accurate? Um, that was one of the arguments. I don't think I'm going to comment on whether right. I think that that was accurate right. or not. No, no, no. Sorry, just, just, I'm just saying, is that accurate that that was one of the arguments? Yes, yes. correct. That yes. is one of yes. the arguments. Not yes. asking for your legal opinion here. <laughs> Sorry. Appreciate Sorry. that. Sorry to put you on the spot there, Benjamin. Um, so right now we don't know what's going to happen with that. That's where we are with this issue right now. Correct. And one of the best things borrowers can do um, in the meantime is sign up at studentaid.gov for notifications so that if the department changes its position, you can get a notification kind of immediately when they change, you know, if they start accepting applications or processing debt relief applications again. Also important to stay, make sure that your contact information is up to snuff with your servicer. You know, payments haven't been required for a couple of years for many of us. There's not been a good reason to stay in touch necessarily, but your servicer might have some good information with some of these ED directives as well. So just make sure that that contact info is accurate. We're talking right now with Laura Sutherland and Benjamin Lee about student loan debt. We'd love to hear from you. We still have a few minutes left. We can fit in another call if you'd want to join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of understanding and learning about student uh, loans and student aid before someone goes to college. Uh, I have a junior in high school who is texting me as we speak, even though she knows not to text me during my radio show. I'm ignoring her text. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about it feels like the systems and the rules have changed so much since I went to college um, 20 years ago. Has, has, it, has it evolved and is it really more confusing than people would think that were trying to navigate it uh, when they navigated it as themselves and now they're trying to assist their children in navigating it? Well, I'll, let me take, talk a little bit about... Um, FAFSA completion and, and one of the, the key ways in which individuals get loans for um, for for, for um, to, to go to college or university, um, and that is through completing the FAFSA. And Wisconsin, unfortunately, has one of the lower FAFSA completion rates in the country. Um, and this is also pretty impactful, again, in vulnerable communities and black and brown communities not completing it as well as they can. And that and that translates into not getting federal loans and obviously not being able to afford going to school. So one of the things that the coalition is working on um, with in, co in coordination with the Fair Opportunity Project is a, fa a, fashion, a FAFSA sorry, completion uh, project. And we were awarded a grant um, close to a half million dollars to, um, to work on this very issue of, of getting FAFSA completion here in the state of Wisconsin. And so with a Fair Opportunity Project and the coalition are spearheading this and um, working on the ground with other organizations that are that are that are working towards getting this completion number up. Um, so that's one of the main ways in which we can make this um, easier for Wisconsin borrowers. Um, but you're absolutely right; it's more complicated um, than it probably needs to be. Um, and certainly, one of the reasons the coalition has formed because, as I said earlier, it is not what motivates people when they're looking to go to school is to dig in and figure out how how much it costs. And so, you can often back it, back yourself into a significant amount of loans, particularly not just in areas of um, traditional four-year universities or, you know, tech colleges, but there's often um, some of these predatory um, for-profit institutions that really can sell you a bill of goods and, and back you into some very expensive private loans um, that are difficult to pay back with promises of high salaries and and, and important positions. Um, we're also seeing that in the boot camp space as well. So these sort of two-year boot camp programs that aren't actually taking out Title IV funding from the federal government, but in fact taking out private loans instead um, that may be equally predatory. So it's a very complicated space. Um, I think people are becoming more educated about taking on this kind of student loan debt. 
Um, and some of that is through the work that the coalition is doing and their membership is doing. Um, but I'm, I'm sure Benjamin would agree that, you know, if you get into this repayment space, you see how over over administrations, how these these loans themselves morph and change. And so mm-hmm. they're a fell loan or they're, you know, and they, you need to consolidate it into a, into a, a different type of loan. And, and so you could have these, you know, it's not uncommon that we're working with people who are 60 plus years old and are carrying lo- their loans that don't exist anymore and they're getting loans for their children. Right. Right. And right. then they're running into this issue. Um, so it is a very complicated space. Um, and one that um, people, people who like us who are working in it are always struggling get to, to get people to listen to us and, and educate themselves. And I count myself in that space of not, you know, not really wanting to spend my day digging into um, <laughs> how to pay back a repayment loan. It's, you know, it's not right. that much fun, but, um, but it's absolutely important and imperative. And, and so we want to empower people with that information and that knowledge to take ownership and, and figure out how to pay things back, you know, without being taken advantage of. Well, and it's so important to differentiate between the federal student loans, which are, you know, a lot of what we're talking about and different levels when you don't fill out the FAFSA and you wound up in um, your options can sometimes be the more predatory um, other, you know, loans that that may not be applicable to all of these um, benefits that Benjamin was telling us about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, to be clear, there are schools out there, you know, there are for-profit institutions, there are boot camps that are not predatory. And I don't mean of to course, say of course, are. absolutely. Um, but, but there's certain, there certainly are those that, um, that you know, it, it, we saw it in the mortgage loan crisis as well. You know, you get you get this stack of documents, just sign, 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 um, and before you know it, you're indebted to a private institution, right, um, right. without the benefits of the federal government um, helping you, you know, repay them. So, in our final moment here, Benjamin, what what should people be doing in in, in thirty seconds? Can you sort of tell us of what people can be doing right now? Make sure your contact information is up to date with your servicer. Sign up for notifications from studentaid.gov and look around on studentaid.gov to make sure you understand what benefits might be available to you, what kind of loans you have. You should have an FSA login. If you don't have one, you can create one there, log in, see what type of federal loans you have. There's a repayment calculator, um, pretty good resource. Um, you know, if, if people want to start planning out what things are going to look like once we, you know, eventually return to regular repayment. Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful talking with the both of you and just learning about the work that the Wisconsin Coalition on Student Debt does. Um, Thank you both so much for joining us today. Benjamin Lee and Laura Sutherland, thank you for your time. Thanks for having us. Take care, y'all. Thanks, everyone, for listening. um, And we'll see you again next week. Thanks, Jade, for producing and Megan for engineering. Have a great rest of your day.